You can't go through life avoiding risk. You won't have any say. You don't have no control over what happens to you. Bad things are going to happen to you. Life will knock you down because life is just damn unfair. But we can, we can absolutely choose how we respond. Today's guest on the Explore This podcast is Azran Osman Rani. Azran is currently the CEO and co-founder of Naluri, a digital health technology company providing accessible and cost-effective health psychology services. Azran's career post-graduation from Stanford University spans across industries, from telecommunications and media industry as a CEO of iFlix Malaysia, the airline business as a CEO of AirAsia Expert the investment banking industry as Senior Vice President of the Kuala Lumpur Stock Exchange, and management consultancy in McKinsey & Company and Booz Allen & Hamilton. On today's episode, we talk to Azran about what no one told you about failures. He gets deep, down and dirty into some real talk and shares how he embraces his failures head-on with curiosity and purpose as his driving force. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hey, Azran. Thanks for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the Explore This podcast. Thank you for having me, Sarah and Janice. So, Azran, most people may know you as a CEO, an Ironman triathlete, an author, and even an ex-management consultant. And these are some, I would say, commonly known facts about you, right, Azran? Stuff that people can, let's just say, get off LinkedIn, any magazine. Right articles that they pick up on you and hopefully we're not really putting you on the spot here on the get-go but they would love to invite you to share about a lesser known or maybe unknown fun fact about yourself to our listeners sure you know all that stuff as you say that's what's on the surface but you know beneath that iceberg probably a ton more failures than most people have gone through i've lost all my hair's testament to the frustrations (laughs) from pulling them all out So Azran, we love that you take pride in being, you know, a square peg in a round hole, a misfit, as some may say, or even someone with an incoherent resume. Could you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about the philosophy that has guided your unorthodox career trajectory? Well, so interesting. First of all, earlier on, I wrestled with the idea of what should my career be? Uh, maybe because I grew up with a very short attention span And no one concept of career or direction really appealed to me. But I love the idea of exploring new things. And I think in the course of this 25 years, I've discovered life isn't about trying to define what a career is, but to kind of just go through the motions. And my whole life, every pivot, every turn has been about serendipitous encounters and, and capitalizing on things that I never planned or contemplate. That makes you a perfect guest for the Explore This podcast. Exactly. And I love what you mentioned about failures earlier. You know, you're no stranger to failures. In fact, you've said that before, that even on a good day, your ratio of failure to success is 8 out of 10. I'm sure you have taken away many valuable learnings from challenges you experienced across your very colorful career trajectory, in particular during your stint in the aviation industry as CEO of AirAsia Expert as there were mm. several notable crises that you had to navigate. So can you share with us a defining or memorable failure that you've encountered from a corporate or corporate strategy perspective? And maybe what 
the lesson was that you were able to take away from it. Wow, too many. But I specified to pick one. I think it was probably 2014. And that was probably the most intense year ever because there was a lot of buildup, right? AirAsia X, every year, nothing went according to plan. We mm. launched in November 2007, right after that, the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 hit. 2010 was the Icelandic volcanic eruption. 2011 was the Tohoku Japanese earthquake tsunami nuclear disaster. 2012 was the Christchurch earthquakes. And of course, it wasn't just natural disasters. There were difficult government and policy restrictions that we had to overcome. And we finally IPO'd it in 2013. And just when you think you've like, okay, I survived this. I made it work. We have institutional buy-in. Life always has something, you know, lurking around the corner. And that came in 2014, where we had not one, not two, but three black swan events that year, right? MH370, a plane went missing in March, still missing today. Mm -hmm. MH17, a plane was shot down over Ukraine that year. And QZ8501, a fatal plane crash. And, and although none of them were directly under me, it affected the whole global uh, the aviation industry in Malaysia. And specifically, because I had worked hard to pull off that IPO to execute this, what I call the North-South Axis strategy, right? And so what the lesson that we learned was it's better to be a big fish in a few ponds than to be a small fish in many ponds, right? So pick and choose the markets that you want to compete in and dominate that market. And that basically said, okay, we're going to withdraw from Europe, right? Big, massive publicity around AirAsia X pulling out of London, pulling out of Paris, mm-hmm. we even withdrew from India, because East-West meant we would have to go against these mighty Middle Eastern carriers, right? And you're just a small fry. But instead, we said, let's focus on this North-South axis connecting China, Taiwan, Korea, Japan to Southeast Asia and to Australia and really try to dominate and have a market leading position there. So it was this massive consolidation exercise in the root network. Investors bought in, subscribed to our IPO. But with those three crises, demand from China and Australia, which now account for two thirds of our revenue, plummeted. Mm. Right. And the share price collapsed. But here's the thing. In times of crisis, I look back and I realize we have this tendency to want to be decisive. We want to act fast. And in my case, I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're massively in an overcapacity situation. I wanted to redeploy 50% of our capacity and send them on short-term leases, sort of one or two-year leases to pockets where there is demand, like summer charters for European carriers to the Caribbean or to North African airlines who need extra capacity for Umrah and Hajj pilgrimage flights to Saudi Arabia, because at least that capacity would earn a small positive margin instead of just bleeding cash in our core markets because there's no demand. Plus, what happened in 2014, if you recall, was a massive crash in our Asian currencies where we earn our revenue. I don't know whether you recall, once upon a time, ringgit was three to the dollar and it became four, right? And same thing with Australian dollars, Japanese yen, Indonesian rupiah, Taiwanese dollars. So all the revenue currencies plummeted and 70% of an airline's cost is US dollars, fuel, aircraft, engineering, etc. So by at least taking that 50% of that capacity to, to these leasing contracts denominated in US dollars, I could you know, reduce that currency mismatch. So I thought it was a sound and logical strategy, but the board disagreed. Mm. And ultimately that led us to part company. And it was very painful. And, you know, for, I think almost three years after that, 
I just had a lot of anger and resentment mm. because to me, I said, see, told you so. We should have done that, right? Because the share price never recovered after three, five years since, since I left. Until one of my executive coaches asked me this question, could you have handled it differently? Mm. And it took three years for that anger to subside, to realize that, you know, in life, it's not about who's right, right? Facts don't win arguments mm. because if we think that life revolves around what does the spreadsheet say, but we don't establish bonds of trust. If we don't connect, we cannot correct. And so I had not learned to build trust with individual board members to recognize that in times of crises, it's hard for people to be open to new ideas. Crises have a way to say, let's stick to the tried and true. And if I took the time to understand what their worries or what their concerns were and try to help position how what I wanted to do would fit and address those concerns and worries, I could have probably made a difference. But instead, I let my stubborn focus on numbers think that, you know, I've got the right answer. Mm. Right? But at and that time, uh, you, you, you thought that was the right thing to do, given the amount of information you had, the, yeah. the data, that was the decision that you had taken. Yes. But again, it's not about data and numbers. And the funny thing is, right, I look back and I think when at the genesis of AirAsia X, there were several reasons why AirAsia did not want to pursue the long haul business and why it had to be created as a separate independent company where we had to raise our own capital, apply for our own license. You know, management consultants, industry experts plotted the unit cost of every single airline whether you're a full-service carrier or low-cost airline, by the distance of your flight. Mm -hmm. And what the data showed is that that cost differential between full-service airlines and low-cost airlines effectively disappears after about four hours of flying time. Now, at that point, I said, well, the problem with data is it only exists in the past. It hasn't taken into account a data point that hasn't been imagined. We, we analyze based on what's already happened. And somehow we think we can extrapolate that in the future. And yet I fell into that same trap seven years later after that, where I insisted that we follow the numbers. Because once you're successful, you think you have the answers. You want to be decisive. You want to act. And so I think, you know, for all the many mistakes that I've made, that's probably the most painful realization. And there's another one, which is another question that was posed about like, how could I have dealt with this differently? Besides just sort of building on that trust, very few decisions in our lives are irreversible, right? Let's say I firmly believe that this path A is the path that we should go on. What if, for example, you know, one of the main reasons why my board said, no, we're going to stay the course is because they believe that oil prices will come down. And so we don't need to take those kinds of financial risks. My point was we live in a turbulent world. All it takes is just one Russia or Iran flare up and oil prices will you know, double or triple back again, because we saw that from 2009 to 2010. But what if I had said, okay, you know, that is the position that they believe in. What if we agreed on a signpost that says, let's stay the course. But at what point, if oil prices change, do we change our strategy? Life isn't always black or white, all or nothing, one or zero, right? You could pivot and change along the way as a way of, you know, kind of meeting halfway and at least we could agree on one direction. 
But again, too stubborn. It sounds like a real lesson learned and something that you really have to, in that sense, thank your executive coach, Azran, for helping you to course correct. And I think it was also a combination of the reflection on your experiences that gave you that realization to let go of that resentment and anger that you had three years on. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, so I'm a slow learner. I find it hard to believe, Azran. So you spoke so much about how trust and connection really defies and beats facts and logic, right? For any, you know, crucial decision-making skill, especially one in the, for example, in this aviation industry. Can you take us through a time when you struggle with failure from a leadership perspective? Wow. Okay. I think, you know, one of my main responsibilities as a leader is to build a team. Because when a leader tries to do the actual work, when we work in the business, we become the bottleneck. And so the way we need to move from working in the business to working on the business to enable the business to grow is to have a strong team around us. Now, probably I would say the other biggest failure in in my career has been to overlook one very critical hiring role of a senior executive in my team And that led to someone who was entrusted with very, you know, clear fiduciary and and financial responsibility and ending up absconding and taking away millions of dollars from the company over five, six years, right under my nose, completely, I was oblivious to that. And at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. That was a failure on my part to not really do the proper due diligence. Again, being too enamored with the CV of this person because I wanted a financial professional who also had operating experience, you know, PL responsibility rather than just a, a functional line specialist because you then understand that, again, life isn't just about spreadsheets, but you really need to uh, understand how to get things done. And so when I saw a profile of someone who had been both a COO and a CFO, I immediately fell in love with that CV. Consequently, I did not dig in deeper into past track records and specifically as it relates to their value system. Mm. And then I really didn't kind of really put in place the mechanisms to at least cross-check certain things. I kind of really operated based on trust. And, uh, you know, unbeknownst for five, six years, that person got me to sign documents usually I'd be rushing off to fly off to go to a meeting somewhere and here are 10 critical uh, approvals that you need to sign. And then I ask that person, have you checked and reviewed everything? Yes, I have, right? And of course, eight out of those 10 are like big ticket items. Okay, pass, 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 pass. Some of these smaller contracts, you know, like the bigger ticket items, maybe a million dollars and the smaller ones, maybe $50,000. Well, if you've reviewed it, I'm going to sign. But these small amounts were kind of sent off to fake accounts, I suppose. I was completely unaware of what happened. So for me, that was a really humbling experience to realize that as leaders, when we make the wrong uh, decisions for our core inner team, it, it can be devastating. For sure. I mean, that sounds like a really painful experience, especially because you've worked alongside this person for you know a particular amount of years. It's not just like a few months or a few weeks. What are some tangible strategies or actions that you now employ in order to mitigate the risk of being blindsided again? Well, to me, I think one of the first things I've learned when it comes to hiring is to have a closed loop system. 
So what I mean by that, right? And I think a lot of people, when they hire, they tend to hire on intuition. Oh, I feel that this is a good person, right? So now I'm very obsessed about writing down what are the criteria that's really important to me and how am I going to assess them? And let's say after that interview, I'm going to put it on a scale of one to 10, one to 10 and some bullet points, right? Why I believe that person fits or, or deserves this number. Now, at the point that we hire, actually, after doing this for hundreds and hundreds of times, I'm probably only 50% accurate, right? I should just flip the coin. Because sometimes people can be great at interviewing, but really crap once they join your team and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But when they you do join your team and they've been with you for three months, you now know probably with 95% certainty whether that was a good hire or not. But virtually all of us don't go back to our notes to say, hmm, did I make a correct assessment? And secondly, if I've hired 10 people or 20 people and I've given these scores, let's say out of these five or six attributes that I want to assess, which ones have predictable value? Which ones are statistically significant? Because if this criteria, you know, people who were rated high, did that actually turn out to be they they are high performers? And some attributes may turn out to be not a good predictor. For example, right? The level of energy and enthusiasm that a candidate exhibits during the interview gets gets us as the hiring manager excited. This person seems to have like a lot of great ideas. Turns out though, statistically, 50% of those who are rated high were great performers and 50% were poor performers. So as a predictive value, it was poor. So by closing the loop, we learn to get better at making those hiring decisions and try to reduce that initial bias, the impulsive bias that we all carry when we're going through the interview process, that we're not aware that we have this bias. Mm. And I'm guessing this is something that you also promulgate within your team when you train them about how to better spot potential candidates. And, you know, on that note, we want to talk about company culture a little bit and about being open and vulnerable. So we, we are really curious to know what has your experience taught you about being an open, authentic, and vulnerable leader who speaks very openly about the failures that you have encountered? Well, first, I have to say, I'm still a long way away. I've got a lot more to learn in terms of really shaping a good culture. I'm I'm still making a lot of mistakes still today. But to build on that story of the whole interview process of writing down and, and being explicit about those hiring decisions, same exact thing with our culture. But here's the thing, right? Most people, for example might have a culture document, might have a list of values that that the company purportedly uh, espouses. But what we don't drill down enough is when we talk about these high-level values, what are the specific behaviors that we really want to see? And what are the specific behaviors, more importantly, that we will not tolerate in the company? Mm. And that if we do see these behaviors, we're going to really act on them, right? So if very few companies today have a list of unacceptable behaviors, you know, beyond obviously your kind of anti-corruption or anti-bribery policies, but in terms of day-to-day, the way we communicate, the way we do performance appraisals, these small things, the way we hire, these are the things that are just unacceptable, right? And, And when we write it down, you know, it becomes an important way for it to scale, But I I use this philosophy called the Google Docs philosophy, which means I'm a big believer in writing this down. But what I tell people is we're all learning. And so we might write down something that works today, but maybe next year it no longer works because circumstances have changed. 
we will rewrite that Google Docs document. But there's always one single reference point. For example, with iFlix, we had 700 employees up to three years in 30 different geographic locations. If we didn't have a, a standard set to guide us on these key decisions, everyone comes with you know, different experiences from their past um, jobs. And mm-hmm. you know, soon the culture just starts to be all over the place. Azran, you speak a lot about this idea of espoused values over experiences. So could you just share with us on that note, what are some of these really important values to you? Well, you know, the two red cards for me are people who are, I know the answer. There's only one way of doing things. Or I work by myself. I'm not going to collaborate with others. Those are the biggest kind of like red flags. And when it comes to leaders, I think we don't have the luxury of just kind of sitting them down beyond one meeting. And if it still persists, we have to pull them out of the organization. Because if we don't, the rest of the organization is going to say, Azran, you know, you talk about this stuff, but it's not real. Because these line managers, these business unit managers don't practice what you preach. And so if they still remain, you know, your whole belief system just goes out the window, right? And so, for example, at iFlix, within the first year, we had to let go of two uh, C-suite executives and, you know, two heads of department uh, because they didn't live up to these values. On the note of leadership, Azran, mm-hmm. you speak a lot about how you embody these values and you want, ideally, you know, your teammates and the people that you hire to do the same as well. Can you share with us how somebody else has demonstrated a leadership quality that has surprised you that maybe you never thought about it, but it made you go like, oh, wow, that, that is somebody who has foresight, somebody who yeah, really demonstrated a leadership capability that maybe you would not otherwise be aware of or thought that was important to you. Mm-hmm. So the, the story that comes to mind immediately is a fresh graduate, this was at AirAsia X again, someone from a local Malaysian university, a fresh young analyst in our quality assurance department. Now, normally, you know, I, I read a lot, I see interesting articles and papers, and I might pass it on to my team members to say, hey, this is interesting. Can you dig into this deeper and see if it's relevant for us and if there are ideas that we can use? And so I'd send this one particular paper to the head of quality assurance And he then passed it on to this brand new fresh graduate to say, hey, the boss wants an analysis of this. Can you prepare, you know, like a PowerPoint presentation for him, right? And I'm going to mention her name, Natalie. Natalie, you know, kind of, I guess, spent, I'm guessing like 30 minutes, one hour to really read that paper. And she literally just walked straight up to me and said, hi, Azran, I'm Natalie. I just joined your team and, you know, just joined the quality assurance department. And and my boss told me that you wanted a presentation of whether the content in this can be applicable. But actually, if you give me five minutes of your time, I can get straight to the point and tell you what you need to know. Wow. Super impressive. Oh, you know, because she realized what's the point of wasting hours of a time trying to prepare this and when she could have just walked straight up to me and just say, that's what I think. And I think it's that the courage to be able to do that, right? Is, is Till today, I'm so incredibly proud of her. Gotta admire the gusto of Natalie. So you go, girl. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. So shifting gears, Azran, from a corporate lens 
through a more personal lens, you are no stranger to the world of high-performance sports, right? I mentioned earlier in the introduction that you're an Ironman triathlete and you speak very regularly about having a breakthrough performance mindset. In fact, a couple of years ago, I think, is it 2018, you wrote a book titled 30 Days and 30 Years, where you talk about the sprint and marathon of achieving breakthrough performance. So can you share with us about a failure that you have encountered in your athletic or maybe physical performance journey and what did you learn from it? Wow. Okay. Um, a lot. And I think one of the first things that, that come to mind, uh, especially because it's very relevant now in the COVID-19 pandemic, is to really manage our energy levels that they go up and they go down and we need to recharge. So for example, if two things, one, initially when I start running and, you know, wow, I can run a marathon. How do I get better? I must train harder and I must train faster, right? And you keep pushing yourself. But after five or six marathons, I still couldn't even break five hours, you know, until I decided to go down to Singapore and, and work with a professional running coach, and he, you know, put me on the treadmill, measured my heart rate, me- measured my oxygen and carbon dioxide mix and kept pricking my blood every five minutes to measure blood glucose levels and or blood lactate levels. Sorry. And then, you know, he said, I need you to build a foundation first. And what you need to do is you need to train at this heart rate intensity. I don't care what speed it is, but you've got to stay in this zone. For example, 120 to 140 beats per minute. But the very next day when I tried to stay within that zone, I immediately called him up and said, that's walking. My grandmother runs faster than that. Uh, because the moment I try to go into the light jog, I go beyond 140. So he goes, because you haven't built the foundation, right? You need to stay in that zone because that is the zone that your body can adapt and go stronger. But if you keep pushing hard and trying to run at 160 to 180, your body's in survival mode. It's in distress mode. It's not getting stronger. It's just surviving. Right? So you've got to learn to go slow in order to go fast. Fast forward exactly 12 months from that first coaching session. I, I broke not only four hour, uh, five hours, I broke four hours. I ran uh, Osaka Marathon in 2012 in three hours, 42 minutes because you build a foundation first. And the second part he said is, okay, you've got to think about fitness as something where you push kind of like, let's say 110, 120% of what you're comfortable, so you get into your uncomfortable zone, but you can then scale back and let your body catch up and recover. So for example, if you're going to push hard on for six days, although at, at that foundation intensity, you got to take that seventh day off. And, and every three weeks, you got to take like five days off. Every three months, you got to take a whole month off to let the body recover, right? And that kind of micro cycles and macro cycles ultimately led to being able to peak at the right time in the year so that you can perform your best. So the message there is we cannot physically and mentally perform our best 365 days of the year. So if we focus and say, when do we need to perform our best and how do we get ourselves ready for that? If I come back to leadership, what I've learned is as a leader, I don't need to be busy every single day. Some days my team may be busy, but I'm just in this mode of absorbing. But if you try to make 10 decisions in a day, by your 8th, ninth, and 10th, you're making garbled decisions because you're just mentally exhausted. You've lost focus and concentration, right? So if we're going to perform our best, we've got to be very deliberate about getting ourselves ready, 
and managing those energy levels to peak when it counts the most. I love how you really emphasize on the value of rest, on the values of recovery, on you know, on listening to your body and being able to listen to an expert as well to tell you what would work best and really internalize it and to also apply that to your professional life as well, especially in a time of COVID, right, where people are working around the clock to be able to know when you need to stop, take a break, recalibrate and refresh your mind. That makes all the difference. But on the topic of high performance activities, a life altering incident happened to you in 2018 of May. Could you perhaps share with our listeners what that experience was about? Wow. Okay. So May 27th, 2018, 8.55 a.m. I know that for a fact because my Garmin died. I was cycling on the road in Kuala Lumpur. A car came from behind at very high speeds and knocked me out. I was completely unconscious. And I woke up in the intensive care unit of Kuala Lumpur Hospital in, with uh, fractures in my skull, bleeding in my brain, thorax four, five, six of my vertebrae fractured, three of my four limbs fractured, and uh, bleeding in my eye. Now, in that situation, right, as I'm sort of regaining consciousness and realizing what's happened to me, the immediate thought was this flood of high anxiety questions. What's going to happen to me? Am I going to be able to walk again? What's going to happen to all the employees that I've hired, the business that I've just started? Will I have to shut them down? How will I provide for my family? And this is a big question many of us are wrestling with today, right? And now, luckily for me, I, I have, you know, very supportive colleagues and friends who basically help me to focus on this realization that no amount of thinking will get me an answer to these big questions. They're just going to be there. And so if you kind of entertain those thoughts, they just go on this never-ending loop. Instead, what they got me to do was to learn to focus on what are the things that I can control. And those things was on day seven, learn how to sit up from my bed and learn to take the first steps. Even when one of my legs was still fractured. But just learn like, okay, if you can get three steps or five steps and maybe come back tomorrow and get to like 10 steps to that next section of the hospital corridor and walk back and just celebrating all these small wins, like progress, progress, at least that's something it's within my sphere of control. Mm. And specifically also, you know, sometimes you have these well-meaning family members and friends who ask, hey, what happened to the guy that hit you? Are you going to sue him? Are the police going to charge him? Oh, man. And I had to learn to say, look. I don't know what happened to him and I don't want to know. And I'm completely not angry with him because I need to use all my energy to heal and get stronger. Because if I focus my anger on someone else, anger is very energy depleting Hmm. and energy is such a precious resource. So I need it for me. So why would I expend it on someone else? Anger is potentially this thing that uses up this precious resource why would you waste it feeling angry at someone else? Because no amount of anger is going to change my situation. So that for me was was the kind of that big realization. Even though that was quite a while ago, I do recall seeing the headlines and there were some of these pictures out there. And it, it was definitely a heart-wrenching sight to say the least, you know, and hearing how you went through these different uh, ways of emotion and even overcoming bouts of depression. And I think what's even more amazing and just it it left me totally speechless when I read this but you actually bounced back to complete an Ironman triathlon in Langkawi in less than six months from when the accident happened 
Tell us a little bit more about that. (laughs) Well, so, you know, it's the things, right? When, now, when I'm on that seventh day in my hospital celebrating taking five steps, no way in my mind could I've even conceived going back to Ironman triathlon racing. But that's the thing, right? It's not about thinking, what am I going to do six months from now? But what I'm going to do tomorrow, the next hour, right? And once I got discharged day 33, you know, I, I got on the treadmill and just said, I'm going to spend five minutes walking, then 10 minutes, then 15 minutes. By day 47, I could pick up the pace and I could start running on the treadmill. Day 62, I could run outdoors for the first time. That feeling of elation, right? And wow. joy to be able to get outdoors, right? But the big psychological milestone was day 84, less than three months from that accident, to get back on a bicycle, to get on the road again, to cycle with my friends. Because I didn't want what happened to me, that accident, to hold me back and take away what really matters to me, that experience of going out there on the road again. And then after about four, three months plus my shoulder healed, this, this broken shoulder, and I could get the full rotation of my arm and start swimming again. Day 112, back in the pool. And I remember getting out of that pool saying, this is it. Went back online, Ironman.com. And oh signed up and, and, and paid for a spot at the, at the Langkawi race. Knowing look, I, I just only had one session of swimming, but the moment you sign and commit, you're like, all right, coach, let's do this. We've got, you know, three and a half months. We're going to get ourselves ready. And day 174, went back to Langkawi and, uh, and completed that race. So it's a true testament that the mind can truly help you overcome all obstacles because it was through that sheer determination of telling yourself that you were going to get better and you were training methodically to it that ultimately helped you achieve that seemingly insurmountable goal of being able to do an Ironman within six months of the accident. So kudos to you, Azran. But, but again, life isn't like this nice linear growth just because you start with the right goal or start with the right determination or desire, right? Like, Every few days, come crashing again, those depressive episodes, uh, feeling dark, cannot get out of my bed the whole day, like it just comes crashing and, and I needed medication to kind of just pull through all the pain. So it is, it is like a seesaw up and down journey. It's not a nice linear growth path. And, and what I have to learn was when, when I do go through those down moments and they will come, it's being able to have people that I could count on to at least help me just to be there for me. It's not like I can expect them to pull me out. That doesn't work. There's no miracle worker out there. But knowing that I just have to get through this and someone is there with me, it, like, no matter how bad it is, like if sometimes it takes two or three days, it will pass and, and you get back on track again. Asran, speak to us a little bit about the fear element, right? Because presumably, and I have heard you speak about this before, and we wanted you to be able to articulate to our listeners about how that fear element wasn't something that hindered you from pursuing something Mm. huge, right? At the time as this Ironman in less than six months since your accident. Instead, you used it as an opportunity to drive you even forward. So here's what I learned about fear. And interestingly, my transition from running marathons to doing triathlons was that big light bulb moment on fear as a marathon runner people say hey hey have you thought about triathlons have you thought about ironman like yeah no that requires swimming and i've never swum in my life but with enough peer pressure and enough like "Hmm, maybe i should look into this just some some group of friends that hey none of us know how to swim but we're going to do together we're going to sign up for our first swimming class and so on my 40th birthday, 10 years ago now, I signed up for my first swimming lesson. I remember it's with this woman in Bangsara in her backyard pool. 
with five-year-old kids. And lesson number one was just put head in water, blow bubbles. That's all we did for lesson one, right? Lesson two was she threw coins in the pool, which is about three, four feet deep, not to go in and, and pick up those coins. <laughs> That's how it starts. And here's the thing I learned about fear. And the reason why I never swam for 40 years in my life, you might not be able to relate to this, Sarah and Janice, but I grew up in the 1970s. And we had not one, not two, but three Jaws movies. Okay, so the movie's about... We all know music. that music. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Was that uh, what scared you? <laughs> oh, completely, completely. Oh. So two things though. One, right, like if ever we went to the beach, right? Oh, there, there's movement in the water. What if there were sharks? And so you stay away from it. And, and the more you avoid what you fear, the more the fear grows in you. Because when you avoid it, you get this temporary sense of relief. So that fear grows and amplifies. And the other thing that amplifies that fear is when people around you say, oh, yeah, yeah, Azran, he's afraid of swimming. We don't even bother asking him out to, uh, to swim in the sea anymore. So your friends and family now are reinforcing your belief that you can't swim. Right? So sometimes people around us can actually really reinforce the things that we hold that are actually limiting us and holding us back for 40 years. Wow. But the moment you can start, like if you find something, if you ask me, okay, well, you don't know how to swim, but go jump into the sea and, and start swimming in a, a triathlon, it sounds impossible. But the first lesson that says, oh, just put your head underwater, blow bubbles. I think I can do it. Although I wasn't the best in my class because those five-year-olds <laughs> just like so, so much better than me. So just starting there, right? Starting there. And until... Till today, by the way, so here's the thing, right? So I've done multiple Ironmans and, you know, triathlons all over the places. I'm still afraid of swimming in open water. No way. That I fear, would not believe you when you that say that. Fear, that fear never went away. What I had learned is to not let that fear hold me back. Because if I wait until the fear goes away to say, oh, now I'm ready, never going to start. So recognizing that your fear won't go away. But what are the things that you can do to push ahead anyway, in spite of that fear, rather than waiting for that fear to go away? And, and so till today, for example, uh, of course, it's been over almost two years since my last race because we're not allowed to swim in COVID. But I still have a lot of rituals that I have to do at the start of the race to get me ready, not, not again to let that fear go, but to not let the fear cripple me from not starting. So that fear is still there. You know, I still like my heart races up. But once I have a ritual, the brain gets into this action mode. Okay, step one, we're going to do this. We're going to listen to the same list of eight songs before the race. Then I have to put it away because you can't wear headphones in, in the sea, right? And then when I get to the, that starting line, like there's this breathing ritual that I do. There are these things that I say, like I, I ask permission from the sea to say, I'm coming into your territory Right. And I'm cool and you're cool. Like this whole, this whole thing so that I focus on a set of things that I'm doing almost subconsciously that I'm not even thinking about it. I do it because if I don't have that ritual, the brain, by definition, starts to worry about the worst case scenario. Or you're going to drown, you're going to drown, you're going to drown. So when we don't give our brains something to do because of its survival instinct, it's deliberately looking for worst case scenarios. So you need to have that action plan. So it's not about waiting for the fear to go away, but to have a plan that says, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this, which is why, by the way, whether it's flight attendants or firefighters, right? The training says when in crisis, you just need to do this from memory. 
Because if you expect to somehow be conscious and be determined at the point when something scary is happening, you're going to lose control. So you go into this routine automatic thing that you are pre-programmed as a way to overcome that fear. And by the way, a few years ago, I decided to go shark cage diving off the coast of LA. <laughs> wow. That's the to biggest stare in the face of my biggest fear <laughs> and say, look, I'm still terrified of you, but I'm not going to let you hold me back. So I just needed to go see that shark in the in, in his face. So, but that was really freaky. I'll only do that once. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> that is wild. And and how was that experience? Did it kind of eradicate your fear of jaws? No, of course not. It even <laughs> amplified it, right? Because the thing about about like you know deep, you know we're in a deep sea is the shadows move fast. <laughs> Then you're like, whoa, like this is some Alfred Hitchcock movie until you start to see the silhouette come closer. It is, it's terrifying. Well, you faced your fears literally in the face of the the very animal that kept you from the sea for 40 years. So yeah, that's a huge achievement, Azran. And so we've also heard you speak about approaching life as a box of crayons. Can you share with our listeners about this? So... I think this was part of that accident recovery back in 2018. Again, you know, well-meaning friends and family members basically start to scold me, right? Saying, why are you cycling on Malaysian roads? Don't you know Malaysian drivers are reckless? You shouldn't be taking those risks because you're a father. Think about your children. And then as I thought about it, that light bulb moment came where I said, what do I want my children to learn? Like, do we actually go through life hiding and avoiding risks, not doing anything risky? Because I can't be around all the time to protect my children. And and I think the metaphor of the, the box of crayons was when, you know, the way to understand this is to say, look, you know what? Life is like being crayons in a box because you can be the perfect crayon. Just don't ever get out of the box. You'll be this nice, perfect crayon but we're meant to color the world. And as everyone who's ever played with crayons know, the moment those crayons come from the box, they are going to get broken. That's okay because broken crayons can still color the world. And so what I want my children to learn is you can't go through life avoiding risk. You won't have any say, you don't have no control over what happens to you. Bad things are going to happen to you. Life will knock you down because life is just damn unfair. But we can, we can absolutely choose how we respond, right? That's incredibly powerful, Azran. And you've just kind of taken us through a journey of what no one told you about failure from a corporate, a leadership, as well as a personal perspective. And you've added in all these little stories of, you know, from the time when you first put your head into the water, learning swimming, blowing bubbles with five years old, all the way to stories about facing your fears in the great ocean with sharks. So my question for you is, how does normalizing conversations of authenticity, failure, as well as vulnerabilities impact the way that we embrace leadership? I I think, first of all, it's so crucial uh, now. And and I think the most important part is to start with ourselves, right? As leaders, we can't expect people to open up to us. And, uh, you know, one of the things I really talk a lot about is to say, look, 
here's the reality, right? If you're a leader and you say, hey, come to me, I've got an open door policy. Any idea, any problem, just come to me. No one is going to come to you. Or if you do management by walkabout, how's everyone doing? Oh, good boss, good boss. No one's going to tell you their problems or frustrations. Or you call a town hall meeting, right? And you ask, okay, guys, so this is the strategy for the quarter. Any questions? No one is going to ask anything except one guy who's going to ask some stupid question because he wants attention. And so as leaders, therefore, we can't say, oh, well, I've done what I can. And if they don't bring up anything, then it's not my fault. But actually, there's a lot of latent frustrations and problems, and it's up to us to unearth it. It's up to us to create psychological safety for people to be willing to speak up. Because when there is no psychological safety, people zip up and they're more prone to repeating the errors and mistakes because no one wants to change anything. And by the way, the number one way that leaders can inevitably suppress psychological safety is by insisting on, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution. I don't know if you ever had bosses tell you that before, but if you think about it, well, if that's what you insist, no one's going to come to you with a problem, but no one's going to bother with a solution either because unfortunately, work in life now is very complex. There are very few issues that one person can solve by themselves, right? So if we had to reframe that and say, I want problems to come to me because at least we can address it together. What can we do so that it's, a, first of all, okay to speak up and, and bring up problems? And also sometimes, you know, no matter how authentic we are, people genuinely have a fear about you know, bringing up problems. So how do we create that safety from anonymity so that people can bring up issues? And how we as leaders, they're going to judge us by how we respond to it, right? Do we take even the small problems seriously? Like, for example, someone anonymously writes, why is it that we have the same cookies in the pantry, right? It sucks. Now, you as a leader can dismiss that problem. But if you say, well, look, you know what? It matters to one person that they bothered to bring it up. Let's address this. Because when you tackle the small things, you earn the right for them to bring up the bigger problems next time. But if you expect, hey, I'm the CEO, so only bring big problems to me, that's not how it works. We've got to earn the trust. We've got to earn the respect to be a leader. And it, it starts with how serious do we take the small problems first? I think a lot of our listeners will resonate with this, having their bosses tell them to always come with a solution in hand. Don't be creating problems for me without a solution, which creates like a culture of fear and doesn't allow employees to feel like they can bring their whole selves to work and thereby causing an environment at work that people don't feel safe in. There's, there's no psychological safety. So we have one final question for you at the end of this episode. We would like you to share with us and our listeners, what's the one thing you recently explored that surprised you? Since it's the Olympics right now, and uh, you know, one of the things people are now buzzing about is, why is it that we now have skateboarding in the Olympics, right? And, and a 13-year-old can win a gold medal. And... And this for me brought is a very important perspective because I used to have, I was one of those people who had this view that, you know, Olympics should only be about serious sports, right? Where there's a clear winner who's the fastest or the strongest, right? Or, or scores the most goals. But if we step back and we say, well, let's actually be curious and learn what does it take to excel in these sports, right? And you start to discover that athleticism 
is not just about strength and speed and endurance, but it's also about flexibility and you know and the elegance of that. Like look at how gymnasts do it, right? Or or balance and coordination, like Formula One driver or, or squash player. And a lot of these sports actually combine dexterity and flexibility and balance and coordination that us regular folks, no way we can do, right? And so that for me was was something that I felt I needed to broaden my appreciation and understanding of what constitutes athleticism and to celebrate that we actually have more, you know, amazing sports out there. That's incredible insight, Azran. And so on that note, we just wanted to thank you for taking the time out on your very busy schedule on Tuesdays evenings. It was such a pleasure having the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then! Thank you.